0: Today, on the culture of tech, we have Jesse Damiani, who is editor at large for VR Scout and CEO of Galatea. Thanks for having me. Today's show is about the future. Dun, dun, dun. And I, I think, in a way, it should be also about trust, because I think that trust is one of the key elements of whether we'll get through the future or not. And I think we can get to that in a moment. So Jesse, can you tell me a little bit about what you do at VR Scout?
1: Sure. So I do a couple different things. Um, One, I basically manage our editorial push underneath my editor-in-chief, Jonathan. So I basically work to field any pitches and manage writers. And then I'm also sort of a... uh, sort of rogue agent when it comes to handling any San Francisco-based coverage because VR Scouts in LA and working various live events, you know, filling in where we need video producer roles or, you know, on-camera roles, just kind of trying to be a Swiss army knife.
0: I've got Jesse on the show because we met in an interesting way earlier this year when I was in California. Jesse, can you tell a little bit of that story and then I'll jump in?
1: Sure. Yeah, we, uh, we were at the modal vr party in uh at modernist post gdc um and i'm trying to think so i guess i'll let you jump in there i'll set the i'll
0: set the scene there yeah Uh, there was a recurring theme every everywhere i went in in san francisco for gdc this year um i talked to pretty much every single person waiters taxi drivers everybody about the future and some sort of Anxiety about the future that was coming, and mm. I have no idea how we even got started talking <laughs> Jesse about that subject, <laughs> but it got into like Ray Kurzweil and some other stuff mm. and uh, Jesse just you know he he struck me as one of the most intelligent people I had ever met uh, well versed in those same s- subjects of futurism and since I'm a historian, I don't talk about the future very much publicly. So I thought that was – we had a neat conversation about That no, was a great conversation. Yeah. Do you remember anything we talked about? I can't remember everything.
1: <laughs> well, I mean bringing up, bringing up sort of singularity type things. I mean I know um, there was a lot of and, – and you referenced um, trust earlier. But I know there was a lot of concern about um, what levels of – you know, basically the, the sort of raw pipeline into the brain that VR can be and the sort of like dystopic consumerist – nightmare that can emerge um, with an illiterate population. I remember that sort of thread.
0: Yeah, that's exactly how I put it, too. Just, kidding. <laughs> Just, <kidding. laughs> Just kidding. Well,
1: and I love the idea. First of all, I mean, I love I love the work you do in general. I think it's such a valuable service um, because these are stories in the same way that people aren't thinking about backing up hard copies of their photos because they're like, oh, it's on Facebook. Everybody gets so used to things being retrievable that they don't think about the things that are irretrievable. And so I just like, I'm really taken with this idea that you're documenting all these stories that are often just word of mouth. They're not recorded anywhere. Um, or they are recorded in places that people can't find them. So, um, and then the fact that you're pushing into um, where this goes in the future, bringing that background and that knowledge of computing history is, was just, it was a ton of fun. It was a ton of fun to talk.
0: Yeah, i um, that's my thing. I'm, you know, I'm a closet futurist. I don't really talk about it much, but that's one of the reasons why I like to study history so much is it helps you know where you're going. Because as people say, history repeats itself, but I think history is more like a fractal, sort of self-similar expansion on the past. So you have these repeating patterns that are similar to what happened before, but they're never exactly the same. Mm. For example, every single social problem we have as a society happened as a microcosm in ancient Babylon or Rome or something, (laughs) you know, even like trolls and people posting graffiti. Everything we have has already happened somewhere else, just at a smaller scale in the past. So one of the things we talked about was um, you you said something really interesting about raising the next generation of artificial intelligence. Do you remember that
1: oh yeah i mean this is this is one of my things and and as to you know all of this you know trust and concern and and everything, um, they say you know no system is without bias, and I think we we use sci-fi to be a cautionary tale a lot of the time, and I'm not knocking that. I think it's that's an important service that sci-fi fulfills but there's something that has emerged in that, which is this sort of techno pessimism. Let's say, and I'm not saying that the answer is necessarily techno optimism. But if we feed that techno pessimism into the AI we build, um, it's going to be it's going to represent that, even if we don't realize we're doing it. And so, what what we'll see is if we presume that AI are going to be these sort of um, ruling overlords or these like demigods um that that want that wish ill on us we're not necessarily going to directly design them to be that but those fears and concerns will be baked into what we build and the conversations we have around them while we're building them will turn them into whatever you know subconsciously whatever they are and so i i try to push against when people head toward that like singularity route one because as far as we've been able to see at this point, AI is tough. <laughs> you know, like we're not just going to stumble on, you know, Skynet in a day or something like that. So we, we do, in a sense, have time to be developing this conversation and to be growing the sort of what we'll say um, psychic or emotional aspects of what, of how we approach AI.
0: You're talking about culture feeding into to AI and the training of AI becoming a bias as to how AI would behave in the future. Um, like uh, if we teach AI through our culture that AI is bad, then it's going to be bad. That's kind of what you're saying, right?
1: Right. It'd be like, I mean, not to be, this is a little bit of a graphic example, but I think it applies. It would be like a parent telling their kid once it's, once the kid is 12, like, oh, I wish I'd aborted you. It's this sense that you are bad bad. I mean, I guess this is me personifying AI, which I shouldn't do, but it's AI learns by by parsing all of what we put into it to learn. <laughs> and so if we're putting in really negative feedback about it, it's going to presume badness of itself.
0: I think that's absolutely fascinating. And in fact, when you said that, it blew my mind. I mean, that was incredible uh, realization you've had there about that. You know, one thing I'm really interested about, I, I did this interview with somebody, as in they interviewed me last year about VR and AR or something, and they said, what do you think about the future of VR? And I said, you know, the future is really, I think AR is the big social change agent here because if you can overlay virtual reality onto our reality and merge them together, I mean, you've got a recipe for just, oh, man, for incredible dynamic social change the likes of which you cannot imagine right now you know I mean this is just people don't realize we're sitting on a rocket we're about to light this rocket and we are getting used to just getting used to the social changes that have come from smartphones as almost a form of AR that our feedback device uh, connecting us all together and now we are going to overlay you know virtual stuff onto our reality that that net network and uh i mean we are, we're primed to, to explode i think oh i completely agree
1: particularly because ar right now has the delivery mechanism you know a lightweight infrastructure to be experienced by billions of people because so many people have smartphones and you know smartphone ar isn't you know properly you know true ar but it does sort of prime the mind to understand what ar is and how it will apply and it does start to prime the minds of people developing tools to be used within ar i mean i've just been amazed since since we met actually both ar kit and ar core launched And these sort of swell of people just doing things from ranging from frivolous to hyper functional, you know, ranging from, I want to take 3d photos of the world, freeze them and drop them and shatter them on the ground to, I want to be able to take a volumetric scan of my room and measure all my surfaces so that I have a perfectly measured version of my room for any of my, you know, virtual home apps, you know, things like that. Um, but, but sort of, I want to dial back, I want to dial back to then move forward. Um, one thing that was said to me also in an interview I was conducting, but um, with with Clive from Unity, and he put it really, really clearly in a way that, that feels true to me, was that AR will be the thing that you come in and out of all day. It'll make up, you know, in the same way, but more than smartphones, uh, your digital sort of general participation. VR will be something that maybe you only do it for a total of a few hours a week. But the theory is, it will be the best few hours of your week. It will be the thing that totally transport you the way that you might think of going to the movies or or playing your video games or going to the theater, anything like that. If VR is doing its job, it will do those things so well. It will create sort of um, fictional universes and fictional opportunities where you can participate with other people in ways that allow you to expand your idea of yourself. And neither is better than the other per se, but. That, to me, is why AR is more poised for people to just wrap their heads around it. Because obviously, like, smartphone
0: AR has been around since, like, 08, you know? Yeah, if you think about overlaying anything over a camera with GPS or anything else over in an app, that's sort of like what you're talking about, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. I mean, Yelp has had Monocle for years. So that's, like, you know, the, the geocoding aspect. So totally. So So then thinking about what you said about it being like a rocket that's about to take off... I think the, the I don't you know I don't know how rockets work but I think the flare has been lit right like I think the jets are starting to pulse now because what we've seen in 2017 in particular um I, there are two things I would chart with augmented reality not just mobile smartphone AR which is Massive, But there's also been something, and I I wrote about this, that I think is quietly making its way into the mainstream that will also have equally as powerful of an impact. And that's AR audio. So people having hearables and people having wireless earbuds and the technology that's being grown around those will allow augmented reality to take a totally different shape in the world. And that tech now exists in a big way beyond the fact that there are all these startups that have produced really compelling. They're called hearables people have already made really compelling sort of examples of this, but now Google has jumped in with the pixel buds. And I think that's the moment when you get like a big tech giant, um, particularly they're framing the use case around real time translation, but there are so many other use cases for AR audio. Like if I have a, a lightweight pair of buds in my ears and I can EQ the world. So I ostensibly never have to take them out because I can hear everything the way I normally hear it. And I can, um, EQ it so that for instance if I'm on the subway and I like the rumble of the subway underneath my song I can EQ that and mix that together I can take calls and position where I'm hearing those calls from so it feels like I'm talking to somebody rather than they're like right in my ear I mean like I could literally talk all day about this but point being both of those both of those things are basically exist already and VR exists too I'm not meaning to say VR doesn't exist too but VR is hard right now for a lot of people to participate in and I have no doubt that once it's easier that people will, but I think we'll see this huge swell and, and sort of culture shift, as you're saying with AR, just because it's you know it's so easy for a consumer to start to to take that leap and it's cheap, so I think you're absolutely right.
0: that makes sense AR is is just crazy. One of the things about history that a lot of people don't realize is that we always assume that the way it has been is the way it's going to be, right. But once these crazy world-changing technologies take place, like AR, the rest of humanity's existence will be based around AR. And at some point, it may be that we have longer existed with AR than without it. So I think about like people taking pictures of their kids or something. Like when my dad was little, he had a couple black and white photos. When I was mm. little, we had a you know a VHS tape, a little bit, and some more color photos and then my kids suddenly there's an explosion of uh, thousands and thousands of digital photos and videos of them and we think of that now as we're living through it as some sort of exception but that is actually now the reality of it Mm -hmm. from now on these things they change the human experience completely and i don't know if i can go anywhere further with that but
1: So my friends at AdVR are launching an AR blockchain network. And I think if they can pull off what they're going for, it will be massive as to sort of what you're describing in terms of the explosion of digital information about us. Um, So they're launching something called MAP. um, And MAP would be a time-coded, geocoded map of the entire world. So it's basically user-generated content. Like any picture you take is timestamped and geocoded, and so if over time everybody's using this platform, and and the where the blockchain helps is that then you can facilitate you know microtransactions, and people can sort of purchase these these moments in time or whatever. And
0: there's a running history. In the blockchain, right, of everything that's happened?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: So
1: so there's this running ledger of everybody who's added to this world map, and then there's also a sense of the world map as something that's actually using the 4D dimension, like the time, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. not only do we have a map of the world just in the abstract sense that we think about it with Google Maps or Google Street View, um, but we actually know the exact moment in time and theoretically could scrub through those moments in time and re- it's time travel. You know what I yeah. mean? You could reconstruct. Jeez. Um, so, you know, as to your point, I mean, th- this this isn't happening now. So, imagining, like, what happens when something like this has been around for 30 years, you know, the, the, the level of what we'll be able to record is oh, insane.
0: Man. Yeah, well, I... On Twitter this morning, people were complaining about, on Stranger Stranger Things, uh, kids in the 80s could go wherever they wanted for all all day long, you know. And imagine the kids in the 20s, 30s, they have every movement and <laughs> observation <laughs> recorded and time-stamped in a encrypted format that can't be altered. Uh, imagine what effect that'll have on society. Well, that's why it's like yeah. when people, when we're talking about these dystopias, it's like,
1: 1984 is the wrong model to think about, and it's something closer to Brave New World. It's something closer to where we've invited these surveillance systems into our lives because of the services they bring us, rather than, and uh, you know, uh, totalitarian, uh, a totalitarian government doing it. You know,
0: I never thought it would happen that way either, because I grew up 1984 kind of stuff. We we read it in high school. And I have a a slight interesting story, which is – do you know who Ralph Bayer is? It sounds
1: really familiar, but I don't know.
0: He was – he invented essentially television video games in the 60s at Sanders. And Mm. um, in 2011, I think, I went to his house in New Hampshire. Um, We – I was talking about possibly doing a book or something. And he said, if you got to do a book on video games, you need to come here. So I had already met him in person at a couple events. So I came up there for just a day. But while we were there, Facebook went public, I think. The next morning, I woke up at his house. We were eating raisin bran with soy chocolate milk because he was out of milk. (laughs) Me and Ralph Bayer sitting at his table in uh, Manchester. And he went into this interesting exposition about how he worried about the future because of Facebook. He said, you know... People are doing the CIA's job for them. And he thought of the Stasi and East Germany and and these totalitarian governments that would keep files on everyone. And um, suddenly everyone was volunteering their information for that sort of thing, Mm. which was insane from a point of view of him. He was born in, gosh, 22 or something. He lived through Kristallnacht and all that And, and World War II. He fought in World War II. And for someone of that generation to think about voluntarily giving up your freedom for some sort of convenience was just insane to him and Mm. of course I agreed with him at the time because I've (laughs) you know I still don't really like Facebook that much Um, I think that's interesting as to your point of the future of um, surveillance and things like that I think this is where the trust thing kind of comes in, which is I was just realizing, you know, we have this problem right now with fake news and things like that. And we have a problem with people of my mom's generation who's born in 1948 who are getting these scam calls, people pretending to be working for the IRS or whatever. And it occurred to me, I mean, to her, she would never even consider that someone would even try – to fake something like that over the telephone.
1: Because, Mm.
0: you know, in her world where she grew up, it was a much smaller world, smaller population. Uh, It was a smaller group of people culturally in control of the communication system so that they, uh, you could have a a basic level of trust of of their representation of what they were telling you. And um, as the world gets bigger, I mean, if you think way back in time, there's a village, 100 people. You know everybody in the village. You know who you can trust. You know who you can't trust. A one-to-one ratio there. But then as the world grows, you meet these people in other cultures. You don't know how their culture works. You don't know how they think and how they feel. And you don't know who you can trust. And I think now that has exploded recently through the internet where uh, I don't think we can really trust anybody. And that's where the problem with fake news is. There's a generation of people trusting the media and the right. news media and stuff that they can't actually trust anymore. They don't know that yet. I think there's a new generation who could, who's growing up with that. Right. But I think, Jesse, do you think there is a remedy for this lack of trust? Is there any common – I was going to say currency, but that's just a dead <laughs> giveaway. Is there any common means of trust – that we can all agree on no matter what our culture is with each other. Do you have any idea about that?
1: Yeah, so I, I have two answers, and one, one obviously is a, is a technology, and one is a, something that I think has to shift in culture. So I'll start with the culture. Um, it seems like so much of human history, um, certainly going back the past several hundred years, we've, we've sort of siloed our private lives away from our public lives. And we have prized this idea of privacy and don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of value to having privacy and alone time and, you know, everything that comes with that. But I also think what's come from that is that we we have certain sort of um, ideas of normalcy that have emerged from that. And we we then do this performance in the world with other people. That we're all kind of buying into this weird idea of no, weird idea of normalcy that none of us actually ascribe to, but we recognize. Like, I mean, the obvious example being if you have sort of an odd fetish um, that, if that were to come out, people would be like, "Oh, that's scandalous. That's so weird." When in fact, like, we all have those things, and um, if if those were forced to be brought to light, um, not that I want them to be, but say they were, we would all, in that single moment, realize because we wouldn't be able to help ourselves in terms of looking at the weirdnesses of each other that, Oh my gosh, we're all super weird people. Um, and while I don't condone or want, you know, a a massive data leak like that, um, I think that, you know, I don't think that's a fair way to sort of create this kind of change. I do think culturally we're being asked to be more realistic about who we are. Um, and to be more, if not like forthcoming, at least more, um, open to sort to, to of take away some of the weird taboos that we've built up around certain ideas. Um, and some of that's, you know, very American-centric in sort of the like post-puritanical sort of framework of our country. You know, like you go to Iceland and you don't see that as much or, you know, fill in the blank, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. So I think, that, I think that's forcibly like that's just going to be happening because more and more information is going to be being revealed. And we're going to reveal more and more information about ourselves. And we're seeing more and more that subjects once considered taboo are just becoming mainstream. Um, And so I think that shift is coming. And I think that shift elicits more trust because when you gather that the people around you are being more vulnerable and more open and, and more exploratory in how they approach their identity, then you are compelled to do that too because you're like, "Oh, it's not hmm. weird that I have this weird fetish because you're talking about all your weird. I feel like I can meet you there now and we can bond that's, about this or
0: whatever." That's true. In fact, there's two dimensions to what you're saying I think that are mesh with what I've been thinking, which is that uh, subcultures have atomized on the internet. There are all these little fra- fractional mm-hmm. little groups of people who are like, "I like that too. I like that too." And whereas before we thought, "Oh gosh, i was so weird for liking, you know, old video games or, you know, Parking the car in the street backwards, or I don't know what you know, anything you can imagine. So, um, don't ask me where I got that example. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing is, is one one thing I've realized I've been meaning to write an editorial about this for two years, which is that we have a breakdown in consensus. I think we've realized through things like Twitter that consensus is an illusion. It was mm. always always an illusion mm. created by. Low bandwidth, okay? Low bandwidth means that only a few people can talk at the same time through mass media channels. Now, we have super high bandwidth. Everyone can talk and know exactly what everyone is feeling at the same time. It has created a culture shock in our system mm. because we have realized after this time, this we do not actually have consens- consensus on anything, especially politically, it was just a representation by these parties, uh, you know, of our con- our supposed consensus, um, who had control of the communications channels, like three three channels of TV. There's only so much information you can get out through there, and the the value of that is really high. You, it took a lot to buy into that, as terms of supply and demand. When bandwidth is scarce, it's extremely expensive. So some right. you know you had to build a giant network. And fund it that way, and only a few voices could speak through it. And now, bandwidth is nearly unlimited. And in fact, when it becomes even more unlimited, like everyone has Google Fiber, I think even things will even change greater than that. So, totally. Does that, does that make any sense to you? Oh, 100%. What happens when everyone realizes that they've just been? sharing in a myth all along. And it's okay (laughs) for every single human being to have their own individual point of view that's different from someone else. Totally. And I think, you know, not to make this about my thesis,
1: right, but like, that's what I really see the value of immersive technology being. Because what VR and AR force you to do is contend with multiple discrete realities simultaneously. So if I go into a VR experience, I am aware that I'm in the real world, but what's being ported into my lizard brain is whatever VR experience I'm in. And depending on how good it is, depending on how, you know, if it's if it's a room-scale experience, you know, if there's haptics involved, if if my avatar, if my embodiment is great, you know, th- those increasing degrees of immersion will will further sort of solidify that, but my rational mind knows no matter what that I'm in the real world. At least for the time being, you know, who knows where this where this all goes. But because because then I now have those two realities in my head, that simple act forces me to consider what alternate realities could be.
0: Well, Jesse, I think you're giving everyone the benefit of the doubt that they can actually understand all these things and be okay with it. I mean, we know, honestly, I mean, our country right now, the United States of America has a a large group of people who may not actually be able to culturally comprehend or accept all those other cultures. You know, there's almost, it's almost, uh, uh, probably a genetic reflexive tendency towards conservatism that keeps Mm. them from understanding these things. I mean, that's just Mm. me talking.
1: No, no. I mean, I read an, I read an article that was actually saying that conservatism, lowercase C is a, is, can be identified in a, in a, in a gene or a set of genes. Um, And I I agree with you insofar as the now. And I guess my hope is that, say, let's take, you know, average Joe of the population you're describing, let's say a boomer or a, even to an extent, a Gen Xer, right? Maybe they're, maybe they're so solidified in who they are and what they expect of the world that they, that there's not really a reality where they'll ever be able to sort of contend with what I'm saying. But what about their kids? What about their 10 year old kid? who gets a PSVR for fun and starts playing video games in the PSVR and because of the immersive and I mean I hate sort of tapping the word empathetic cuz you know it just gets bandied about so much but what about what about that kid and my hope is that there is a sort of psychic change in that person or rather not even a psychic change it just it just doesn't let certain frameworks rigid sort of cemented frameworks of reality Enter that person's picture just because the media they're contending with and the way they're computing is just so dramatically different than anything we've ever had access to.
0: You know what's funny though is I feel like right now as humanity, we are more connected. We know more about the universe, about knowledge and science than ever before. But it is not making it any harder for fundamentalists who deny – you know, our reality that we're seeing through experimentation and rigor. They're not, Mm. it's, they still, they take advantage of this network. They take advantage of science. They take advantage of everything we've developed through technology just to spread that. So I don't know. I'm not completely optimistic that just by default, some sort of new technology will allow, Someone to have this realization and suddenly accept everyone else's viewpoint and um universe, private, own private universe, you know, through VR and sure things like that. So, uh, I think that the future of trust. Well, I was talking about let me go back to you were talking about uh virtual worlds as discrete realities and things. And I I feel like if the way things are going continue, we may end up where everyone just has their own world with their own set of physics and their own rules and politics and everything and then they're finally happy. It's like a universe of one, you know, right. cuz we have no consensus whatsoever, no shared trust other than one thing, which is What I thought about because of the the book called Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Yeah, I haven't gotten a chance to read that yet. The book is amazing. It's exactly my kind of book. And he talks about when there was no common language, no common culture, the only thing everyone could agree on, explorers going around the world in the 16th century, 15th, whatever it was, was money and currency. It was that was the only thing they could agree on. And I feel like we're going that direction now in terms of if we do have a breakdown in trust, if this is something that I'm correct about, unfortunately. Um, well, let's just say, what do you think about Bitcoin? <laughs> let's get into Bitcoin for a yeah, second. Yeah, let's there. do it.
1: So I'm I'm a huge proponent, not just of Bitcoin, but of blockchain as a, as an overarching technology that transcends just cryptocurrencies. But just I'll, I'll stay in the Bitcoin realm. For this bit, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of amazed by, well, I'm, I'm obviously amazed by Bitcoin, but I'm also amazed at how quickly Bitcoin has solidified into something that people now believe in. And when we're talking about trust, a system that without the operation or or with very minimal sort of upkeep type of operation by human beings people trust in it. And so I, I'm a huge, I'm a huge proponent. And I think what I've been telling, you know, I've been, I've been encouraging, um, you know, friends and family who, who either ask me or who I think should, should hear from me about this to, um, invest in Bitcoin, uh, and Ethereum. Um, for a while I was really hot on Ethereum. Then I cooled off and now I'm, I'm back to feeling pretty good about it again. But Bitcoin, because it, because it's such just an established cryptocurrency. It's not trying to be an entire blockchain network. Um, I don't see any reason why that is ever, well, I shouldn't say ever, but for, for the foreseeable future, ever going to become less valuable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people talk about it operating like the gold standard um, because it 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 isn't tied to a government or any particular body. It's just tied to us believing in it. And so, as to your point if we have all these sort of isolated individual realities we actually as you're saying will need a baseline means to transmit value to each other because we're still going to want to like give and take things and we're yeah. still going to want to go explore and so something like
0: bitcoin really demonstrates that that's possible yeah it has um, no central authority so just through by virtue of its its mechanics of how it was created it's uh, it's always it's something everyone can can believe in and, and exchange without any sort of uh, central authority saying you must trust the value of this currency. It's all just built into the way it works ma- mathematically. Exactly, right? it's brilliant. Yeah, and
1: then you start to look at something. You know, you working up in terms of um, complexity of uh, of uh, what can be done you move to something like Ethereum where you have smart contracts and then you've baked in this idea that, you know, it's basically a conditional. It's an if then it's if, if I say, um, you know, hello, then you receive, you know, five ether from me or whatever. I mean, that'd be an insane amount of money for, <laughs> for a hello. But point being, every time that happens without a mediary that this just occurs. Mm-hmm. So, when we think about that in, in a lightweight framework, like what I just said, it's kind of like a neat, you know, whatever. But what happens when you start to think about it with, um, like, take um, IoT, Internet of Things, or, or, or um, self-driving cars? And what happens if in that self-driving car, when gas gets to, or energy, whatever energy is powering this car at the time, gets to 15%, the smart contract kicks in and it goes and it fills up. And the smart contract facilitates both the financial transaction, but also the execution of the task of going in and recharging that energy. And so you're creating this whole autonomous system for things that we actually, as humans, don't need to be doing. Hmm. Um, We're like hanging on to these ideas. So, and then you move up to something like Tezos. I shouldn't say up that because that makes it sound like one's better than the other. They're not. But you look at Tezos and they have a system of governance. So now people can come together and decide what the consensus is together. And I think that opens up the problem of potentially, you know, like things we run into with our own republic in America, but then also the too many cooks in the kitchen idea. But there will be spaces where that type of blockchain will be helpful because it will be really touchy subjects that can't just be handled in a simple transmission of value. It'll be something where people – it has to be an ongoing conversation about what the particulars of those transmissions – are. And so, so, and these are just a few examples. I mean, people are developing things all over the world that have just like, like when, when I read about it, I'm just like mind blown that it's like, this all happened because like eight years ago, somebody decided to finally put distributed ledger systems and cryptography and currency into one place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now, and now it's like changing the, the, the backbone of what the internet will be.
0: Yeah. Well. Oh. So there is a fire alarm going off. Yikes! Is there an
1: actual fire? I don't think so. It's, I live in this big uh, building with that. Attention. Hold on. Attention. An emergency has been reported. Bummer, dude. Let me. Um, Please go to the nearest fire exit and leave the building. Let me. Uh, just, I'll go down to my office and just and just buzz you back. Yeah. Call I'm me there. back when you're still alive. Okay. All right, it'll be right. like five minutes probably. Okay, right.
0: no problem. Bye. Uh,
1: but... Oh yeah, it's... this is one of the joys of living where I live is that college kids are still figuring out how not to burn things in the oven.
0: Or smoke things near the fire alarm. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, that's the
1: other thing. This one really was, though, food. Because like we got down to the bottom. Like I live on the seventh floor, and you have to take the stairs. So I'm like going down, down, down. And then mm-hmm. you get to the first floor, and it just smells like... Burnt breakfast. Yes. I, I don't like. I don't even know what. But you're just like, oh. So. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I am alive.
0: I'm back. I'm glad. Yeah, I was about to make some awesome point, or you were, but I don't remember what it was. No, you were. We were talking about blockchain,
1: and I had referenced um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and just the different things people are building.
0: Yeah, I was thinking then, about. Well, I was thinking about a future. If there's no common means of trust. You know there are certain universal things we can agree on, like mathematics and currency, and Bitcoin combines both of those things. So, if everyone lives in their own universe, or even if they don't, don't you know they could at least exchange uh, Bitcoin without any sort of universal agreement on any particular government or other entity um, presiding over it. That's, I guess, that's what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I think when we think about why we made money in the first place. It was to create something that we all agreed on signified value. And we've just been moving forward as if, like, speaking of those things we were talking about earlier, where the sort of accepted truths, um, money itself is a system that perpetuates the ones in power. And what is interesting about Bitcoin is that in its very nature, it's decentralizing that power. So even when people are trying to use Bitcoin and and to great success to find power within that system, the larger impact of what they're doing is moving toward a system of total decentralization or as close to total decentralization as we can get. And what you get with that is then returning, um, making as unbiased of a system of exchange of value as you could conceivably have obviously nothing will ever not have any bias but when you have something that is just sort of (laughs) at the end of the day just numbers on the internet then nobody can um yeah nobody can do anything well i shouldn't say i should never use uh sort of extremes like that but it just it limits it limits the ability for central bodies to do like what we saw with Wells Fargo. I think it was late last year. Um, Mm -hmm. You you just can't do that. It's it's just not available to you. So it's an exciting time to think about um, virtual worlds and blockchain networks coming together. Because if, as you're sort of supposing, that virtual worlds will more deeply isolate us or at least have some... Isolating capacities, then we will need a framework that still forces us to participate with each other. Yeah, Anything I was thinking,
0: block- yeah. even if we all you know lived in our own little worlds on a computer apiece, we just still need to pay the power company, right? I mean, somebody's got to be mining this from a star somewhere. <laughs> we gotta buy it. We'll be using Bitcoin, I guess. Well, or... maybe. I mean, <laughs> n- not not
1: maybe mining it. Well, actually, yeah. mining it from a star actually might be a good. And actually, one thing that I think is interesting is that what we will inevitably need to pay for is upkeep of systems to distribute power. But as it turns out, there are plenty of means of pulling in power from a star, i.e. the sun, Mm -hmm. um, and the sort of patterns of the world, you know, solar and and, er, sorry, um, wind energy, Mm -hmm. um, that, that actually don't cost us anything. We get them every single day and a glut of them we get so we get so much energy from the sun that we could power the world multiple times over mm-hmm. just from that energy but what we'll need to still pay for is people creating systems to channel that energy into the places infrastructure it needs to go. um one thing that
0: the infrastructure, exactly yeah mm-hmm.
1: exactly and and one thing that's really exciting to me Right now, is there people working on basically beaming energy, you know what I mean? So like wireless energy and, and people have made a lot of progress. Um, so you start thinking about combining that with blockchain. And there are a few companies doing this and I, I'm not sure who's going to get it right. But speaking of stripping sort of centralized power away from one or, or sort of like a, you know, an oligopoly and, and returning it to just all of us, imagine if we're all just harnessing solar energy using solar panels or, or whatever sort of renewable source that we're get generating ourselves and we're all linked up on a blockchain network that's governed by smart contracts so anytime i have an excess of energy my smart contract is set up to then farm that energy elsewhere so if i'm in tempe arizona or something like that and i'm just getting loads of solar energy i then am beaming it away from where i am now the idea would be you're losing a lot of that energy when you beam it but Even if it's a small fraction of what's able to be there, then anybody who needs it is just sort of like sending off into the system and saying, I need energy. And somebody's answering that call um, from potentially very far away. But we're all sort of on a net linked with each other, sending each other that energy. Again, you need infrastructure and you need able to upkeep that infrastructure, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily need to pay for the original power source, and you definitely don't need a power company. Um, mm-hmm. You just need a few individuals who are, or not, I shouldn't say a few, but a small amount of individuals who benefit by providing the service of upkeeping the network.
0: Yeah, you you're know, sort of talking about a, a decentralized power company in a way, right? Exactly. Just not, yeah, so maybe the future is going to be completely decentralized in some way or another. And I don't know it whether that's like good it's or heading, bad. At least it's setting that one. Yeah, it's it's bad for for us or for me who grew up in a world where everything was centralized. But the future, you know, people will be used to it. I guess future generations totally because so, it's you know it just screws with my brain because the way I, the way I grew <laughs> up. It's that's what's so crazy about the nature of change and this exponential change. In the lifetime of a human, we've witnessed so many things. Like imagine someone born in 1900 who saw the origination of flight uh, to the moon and and beyond, and and the the internet, and gosh, all these technologies and computers, and and now look at what we're talking about here. And just in this podcast, it's sort of crazy thinking about it. <laughs> oh boy, totally. Yeah. So and, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't have a I don't have any other point. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think. I, well,
1: so what, what, I'd, what I'd like to build on that yeah. with is that we like it's one thing to be the generation that either um, builds it or encounters it because some people are building it and some people are encountering it. And it's another thing to have grown up where there was no other reality. And I think that's mm-hmm. the key differentiator because I'm with you in the sense that even for me, and, I, and I've been keeping up with the blockchain space for a while, it's still really difficult to wrap my head around some of the applications that I see come out of the woodwork. Um, yeah but if there was somebody born in you know 2022 and by the time they're eight years old it's 2030 and blockchain has sort of subsumed a whole portion if not all of what we think of as the web then -hmm. they're not it's not going to be something that's like they have to wrap their head around at all it's just going to be what they grew up with
0: yeah and here's the thing here's the thing about technology i'll interrupt you for a second is Every technology yeah, is built yeah, built on something that came before, and just like someone who uses a computer today and the internet doesn't have to have any knowledge of relativity and particle physics and whatever magnetism and every possible physical and scientific thing that came into creating these computers in the same way you know people in the future won't know have to know how Bitcoin or blockchain have to work to use them every single day they'll just take them for granted, you know totally absolutely. Or power transmission, or you know, just anything. It's, uh, I guess that's sort of the history of technology is just taking the next thing for granted and <laughs> totally <laughs> making it normal. Well, you,
1: and and also, you know, Jaron Lanier talks about this because, and I, you you will know these people better than I will, because and I've you know I'm sometimes bad with names, but he's friends with the guy that invented MIDI, and he just wanted to have the ability to record. I believe it was piano notes in a digital format, and this is like. I think, early 80s. He had no conception that MIDI would be the system by which music was encoded in digital form for everybody. You know what I mean? He had no idea he was creating a foundational technology. He was just making something fun. And that's kind of, I think that's an important, like both cautionary tale and sort of um, advocacy for experimentation all in one story, where it's like, even though it's been limiting in certain ways because people haven't been able to develop Uh, formats that would make a lot more sense or like you know predominant formats would make a lot more sense he also kick-started all these people participating in this new field Mm -hmm. and so I think the best we can hope for is that when we're developing these things to be as intentional and thoughtful about every possible you know iteration and externality but also not to be scared and and shut down by them because the wave of Progress in technology is inevitable. And I don't mean that any one of these technologies is, um, but we just can't help ourselves. We we have to keep innovating. It's just like we're addicted to it. And given that that's the case, how do we participate in a way that drives it toward what we believe to be good or of value?
0: Um, yeah. And that, that brings yeah. me back to everything I said to everyone I met in San Francisco this year. Everyone I talked to was worried about the future and – The problems of misapplied, um, well, bad applications of technology. And I kept saying the same thing over and over to everybody, probably even including you, which is technology is what you make of it. You consider an axe. It can be used as a weapon or you can use it as a useful tool to chop down a tree. But the goodness of the technology is not inherent in the axe. It's not inherent in the technology. It's dependent on the user. So it's up to us to use this technology responsibly. Completely. So, Completely. Well, of course, the problem is: is what and, happens when you invent them. an axe that has legs that can chop by itself? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and then they can all communicate with each other about yeah. their wants. Yeah, and on blockchain too, talking, and you can't blocking. alter the the ledger. Right. Exactly. Mm.
1: Right. Well, <laughs> that's. I mean, the, the the smart car example speaks to the axe example, where it's like, what happens when we like with tools like blockchain and AI, equip our, like, we've we've now made tools and instruments that are autonomous. And what happens when we equip them with things that could be construed as will? Mm-hmm. And at what point, is, I'm sure you saw um, the lo and behold reveries of a connected world, the uh, Werner Herzog doc.
0: I didn't actually. Or, God, Her- I'm Herzog. so bad at names. Yeah. He's interviewing
1: And, um, he asks him, do you think the internet could develop consciousness? Mm -hmm. And he says, not only do I not think that the internet, you know, couldn't develop consciousness, I can't sit here and tell you that it hasn't already. Mm -hmm. And so interesting because we are barreling into this, these realms. And the thing we understand the least out of all this stuff is our own consciousness, you know? Uh And so don't know what we're going to like, we can't control what we're going to make. And I think there's been this sort of meta narrative of being able to like be in control of our technology. And I think I think now what we need to shift our goal to is how do we how do we help sort of grow and raise this technology in a way that communicates what we think are good, productive values um, with full knowledge that at some point they'll be sovereign, you know, and as we're seeing with the sort of big sort of clickbaity news out of Saudi Arabia, like we are going to have sovereign digital bodies.
0: Mm-hmm. And we just need to be
1: for that. Yeah.
0: Oh, gosh. We're going to have to give over control to the algorithms, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be able to run it faster and better than we can. Totally. Oh, geez. So, well, I hope everyone at home can follow that and they aren't totally freaked out. I think we've come to a few conclusions, which is one of which is blockchain is like the greatest invention since fire. And <laughs> also... <laughs> I don't know. The future is what you make of it. Uh, use technology responsibly, kids. And uh, any final thoughts, Jesse, about everything we've talked about? No, this
1: has been wonderful. Thank you again for uh, bringing me on.
0: Whew. Yeah, I knew I shouldn't have delved into the future. I just I should <laughs> stick to the past and not have nightmares and stuff. Okay, But anyway, so thanks for joining me, Jesse. Um, this has been a great episode, and um, I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Sounds great. I'm looking forward.
0: All right. Talk to you later.
1: Alright, uh-huh. bye.